Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, October 24th through Tuesday, the 29th, feature guest conductor David Afkam and a program including Symphony No. 44, The Morning Symphony by Haydn, Richard Strauss's Death and Transfiguration, as well as Johannes Brahms' Symphony No. 3. Here are Philip Huscher's program notes on Strauss's Death and Transfiguration, a work lasting about 24 minutes. Shortly before he died, at the age of 85, Richard Strauss told his daughter-in-law that he wasn't afraid of death. It was just as he had composed it in Death and Transfiguration. Only a few months before, Strauss had read Josef Eichendorf's poem Im Abendrot, At Sunset. When he came to the lines, How tired we are of wandering, could this perhaps be death? He took his pencil and jotted down the magnificent theme from Death and Transfiguration that he had written nearly 60 years earlier. And then, summing up his life's work, he wove it into the closing pages of his Eichendorff setting, now known as the last of the four last songs. It's the marshalin in Strauss's Der Rosenkavalier who says, To be afraid of time is useless, for God, mindful of all his children in his own wisdom, created it. But like the Marshallin, Strauss always heard the ticking of the clock, and he couldn't help thinking about death. He claimed that from an early age he had wanted to compose music that followed the dying hours of a man who had reached toward the highest ideal goals, and who, in dying, sees his life passing before him. In 1888, without a gray hair on his head and with another 60 years of life and music ahead of him, Strauss wrote knowingly of a man's last days on earth. It's a young man's view of death and a romantic vision of old age, scarcely touched by the chilling truths of infirmity and hopelessness, but it apparently still satisfied Strauss at the end of his own life. The first edition of the score, as well as the earliest printed programs, included a poem by Alexander Ritter, a fervent Wagnerian who had married Wagner's niece, Julie, and it was written after Strauss had finished the music and was offered as a literary guide to the piece. At the time, Strauss thought Ritter's scenario indispensable to an understanding of the score, but the best guide is really the one the composer himself wrote in a letter to a friend in 1894. It was about six years ago when the idea occurred to me to represent the death of a person who had striven for the highest ideal goals, therefore possibly an artist, in a tone poem. The sick man lies in bed asleep, breathing heavily and irregularly. Agreeable dreams charm a smile on his features in spite of his suffering. His sleep becomes lighter. He wakens. Once again he is racked by terrible pain, his limbs shake with fever. As the attack draws to a close and the pain subsides, he reflects on his past life, his childhood passes before him, his youth with its striving, its passions, and then, while the pain resumes, the fruit of his path through life appears to him, the ideal, the ideal which he has tried to realize, to represent in his art, but which he has been unable to perfect, because it was not for any human being to perfect it. The hour of death approaches, and the soul leaves the body, in order to find perfected in the most glorious form in the eternal cosmos that which he could not fulfill here on earth. 
A born opera composer, Strauss begins with a deathbed scene, dark and uncertain, and filled only with the sounds of the sick man's faltering heartbeat. A sudden convulsive passage depicting the struggle with death ultimately gives way to the work's central theme, an impressive six-note motif, characterized by an octave leap, which represents the artist's ideals. The flood of memories begins pointedly with a storybook infancy of remarkable innocence. Childhood is the kingdom where nobody dies, wrote Edna St. Vincent Millay, the once popular poet who died the year after Strauss. Strauss then moves on through youth, marvelously evoked by the self-confident swagger of the horns, to romances of such passion that their recollection brings on a spell of heart palpitations rendered by the low brass and timpani. The hero revels in remembrance before there is one final defiant moment of struggle. Death itself arrives, accompanied by the solemn striking of the tam-tam. The transfiguration is like one of Strauss's own great opera finales, weaving the work's main themes together through a series of moving climaxes in music of radiant beauty. Program Notes by Philip Huscher on Death and Transfiguration by Richard Strauss. And now on to Johannes Brahms' Symphony No. 3, a work lasting about 40 minutes. The Chicago Symphony played Brahms' third symphony in its very first season. By that time, Johannes Brahms, still very much alive, had stopped writing symphonic music. Little more than a year before, he had announced his decision to quit work on his fifth symphony. It was a time of tying up loose ends, finishing business, and clearing the desk. Brahms was a tidy man. He left virtually no evidence of his unfinished Fifth Symphony. It's hard to imagine a time when Brahms' Third Symphony was contemporary music. To many listeners today, it is emphatically classic in the sense of a work of enduring excellence, cozily familiar and harmless. But several hundred people walked out of the first Boston Symphony performance in 1884. It had been introduced to America a month before at one of Frank van der Stocken's novelty concerts in New York. But Brahms III was once a novelty tough for orchestras and difficult for audiences. Even when Brahms' music was new, it was hardly radical, Brahms was concerned with writing music worthy of standing next to that by Beethoven. It was this fear that kept him from placing the double bar at the end of his first symphony for 20 years. Hugo Wolf, the adventuresome song composer, said, Brahms writes symphonies regardless of what has happened in the meantime. He did not mean that as a compliment, but it touches on an important truth. Brahms was the first composer to develop successfully Beethoven's rigorous brand of symphonic writing. Hans Richter, a musician of considerable perception, called this F major symphony Brahms's Eroica, there's certainly something Beethovenesque about the way the music is developed from the most compact material, although the parallel with the monumental expansive Eroica is puzzling, aside from the opening tempo, Allegro con Brio, and the fact that they are both third symphonies. Brahms's third symphony is his shortest and his most tightly knit. 
Its substance came to him in a relatively sudden spurt. It was mostly written in less than four months, a flash of inspiration compared to the 20 years he spent on his first symphony. Brahms was enjoying a trip to the Rhine at the time, and he quickly rented a place in Wiesbaden where he could work in peace and canceled his plans to summer in Bad Ischl. The whole F major symphony was written nonstop. The benefit of such compressed work is a thematic coherence and organic unity rare even in Brahms. Clara Schumann wrote to Brahms on February 11, 1884, after having spent hours playing through the work in its two-piano version. All the movements seem to be of one piece, one beat of the heart. Clara had been following Brahms's career ever since the day he showed up at the door some 30 years earlier asking to meet her famous husband, Robert. By 1884, Robert Schumann, Brahms's first staunch advocate, was long dead, and Brahms's on-again, off-again infatuation with Clara was off for good, but she was still a dear friend, a musician of great insight, and a keen judge of his work. Surely, in trying to get her hands around the three massive chords with which Brahms begins, Clara noted in the top voice the rising F-A-flat-F motif that had become Brahms's monogram for frei aber froh, free but joyful, an optimistic response to the motto of his friend, Josef Joachim, frei aber einsam, free but lonely. It's one of the few times in Brahms's music that the notes mean something beyond themselves. That particular motif can be pointed out again and again throughout the symphony. It's the bass line for the violin melody that follows in measures three and four, for example. Clara also can't have missed the continual shifting back and forth from A natural to A flat, starting with the first three chords and again in the very first phrase of Brahms's cascading violin melody. Since the half-step from A natural down to A flat darkens F major into F minor, the preeminence of F major isn't so certain in this music, even though we already know from the title that it will win in the end. In four measures, and as many seconds, Brahms has laid his cards on the table. In the course of this movement and those that follow, we could trace with growing amazement the progress of that rising three-note motif, or the falling thirds of the violin theme, or the quicksilver shifts of major to minor that give this music its peculiar character. This is what Clara meant when she commented that all the movements seem to be of one piece, because although Brahms's connections are intricate and subtle, we sense their presence and that they are unshakable. For all its apparent beauty, Brahms' Third Symphony hasn't always been the most easily grasped of his works. Brahms doesn't shake us by the shoulders, as Beethoven so often did, even though the quality of his material and the logic of its development is up to the Beethovenian standards he set for himself. All four movements end quietly. Try to name one other symphony of which that can be said. And some of its most powerful moments are so restrained the tension is nearly unbearable. 
Both the second and third movements hold back as much as they reveal. For long stretches, Brahms writes music that never rises above piano, and when it does, the effect is always telling. The Andante abounds in beautiful writing for the clarinet, long one of Brahms's favorite instruments. The year the Chicago Symphony first played this symphony, Brahms met the clarinetist Richard Milfeld, who inspired the composer's last great instrumental works, the clarinet trio and the clarinet quintet. The third movement opens with a wonderful arching theme for cello, another of the low, rich sounds Brahms favored, later taken up by the solo horn, in a passage so fragile and transparent it overrules all the textbook comments about the excessive weight of Brahms's writing. There is weight and power in the finale, although it begins furtively in the shadows and evaporates into thin air some ten minutes later. The body of the movement is dramatic, forceful, and brilliantly designed. As Donald Tovey writes in his famous essay on this symphony, it needs either a close analysis or none at all. Two things do merit mention. The somber music in the trombones and bassoons very near the beginning is a theme from the middle of the third movement, precisely the sort of thematic reference we don't associate with Brahms. And the choice of F minor for the key of this movement was determined as early as the fourth bar of the symphony when the cloud of the minor mode crossed over the bold F major opening. Throughout the finale, the clouds return repeatedly and often unexpectedly, and Brahms makes something of a cliffhanger out of the struggle between major and minor. The ending is a surprise, not because it settles comfortably into F major, but because in a way that's virtually unknown to the symphony before the 20th century, it allows the music to unwind, all its energy spent, content, with the memory of the symphony's opening. Program notes by Philip Husher on Johannes Brahms' Symphony No. 3. My name is Rich Caparola. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.